Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. And let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I just thank you for just your presence here right now. Lord, I thank you that as we just began to sing together, your presence is so real, just tangible. That your spirit is here in this place ministering to our hearts and to our lives, Lord. Lord, I thank you that you taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I thank you for that phrase in particular right now in your prayer that you gave to us, Lord. I thank you for the coming of your kingdom. I thank you that not many days hence, that truly, Lord, we will not just be confessing it by faith, but we will be saying it because it's so real that the that the poor is rich, that the weak is strong because of the things that you have done for us, Lord. There will be no more tears, no more regrets. There will be no more sicknesses, no more losses, no more sadness, only the joy of your presence at all times for all eternity. Lord, I thank you for your presence here right now. Teach us to practice your presence in this life, to seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness above all, every, all other things, because none of the other things will we take with us, for flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven, that we will be raised from the dead, we will be made new creatures, even physically, not just spiritually, as we are now. And Lord, I just thank you that you are with us until the very end of the age you promised and that your Holy Spirit would never leave us nor forsake us. Teach us, Lord, to appreciate your presence in our lives and to practice your presence in our lives and to seek after your face above all other things. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're drawing closer to the end of the book of Revelation, and I can promise you when we started this last February, I really didn't think we would go so long, but boy, a whole lot of things have been changing in the world, so there's been a whole lot of stuff to talk about, and uh, I thought I would start out by doing kind of a minimal teaching on Revelation, sort of, sort of a survey, and I just can't do it. I don't know. I just get carried away. So we've been having a good time, and... Um, We've come to chapter 21, and there are two chapters left in the book of Revelation, and we're not going to rush through them either because this is the best part of the entire book. And as I've divided the book on the outline that I gave you in the very beginning, um, there's nothing holy about the outline. You can divide it however you want. But um, part 11 of the, the book, as I've been teaching it, uh, begins with verse 1 of chapter 21 and runs through uh, verse 9 of chapter 22. And it's called the new heaven and the new earth. And then the final part of the book um, comes uh, from chapter 22, uh, verse 10 and on through 
uh, verse 21. And these are the, the final message that's given at the end of the book. So we don't want to rush through these things, but um, because, like I said, this is this. When my friend Kevin McMullen that came here and preached not that long ago, he always says, "I've read the back of the book and we win." Well, this is what he's talking about. This is the back of the book, and I think it's it couldn't be anything more important than these two chapters in the entire Bible. So let's begin here with chapter 21. I'm going to read verses one through eight. 1 through 8. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Let me take a break for a minute. The first word is then. When? Well, it's the next scene that John sees in his vision. Remember, he's seeing in this vision these scenes that are like maybe you're watching a movie or a play, more like a play, and the, the, the curtains close, and then it opens up again, and he sees a new scene. And we have just finished looking at the 1,000 year reign of Christ in chapter 20 upon the earth and the final destruction of Satan being cast into the lake of fire and the judgment of all who are without Christ. And then it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. So you see, even the earth we live on and the heaven above us will all pass away. But the word of God will never pass away. And there is no longer a sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he says, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving, and abominable, and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Amen. So I want to begin uh, just by focusing on some Old Testament scriptures that are repeated here as a foundational scriptures and a New Testament scripture also uh, for what we're reading about in Revelation chapter 21. I don't think anybody here thinks that this is just a myth or this is just a nice fable that's in the Bible that has some metaphorical meaning, but nonetheless, we tend to have an attitude towards this as if this this is just never going to happen kind of thing. Or if it does, well, is it going to be boring when we get there? What are we going to do? You know, and all that kind of stuff that people have all these completely silly questions. I think when people have those questions, it's only because they've never even spent five minutes like we just did when we were worshiping God in the presence of God. Because if you've ever had just a tiniest taste of the presence of God, you know that there's absolutely nothing that could be boring about the uh, new heaven and the new earth and living for all eternity in the new Jerusalem in the house of God. So 
uh, first off, let me look back over at Revelation chapter 20, which you've got right there. Verse 11, it says, Then I saw a great white throne <clears throat> in him who sat upon it. We talked about this last week, from whose, or the week before. From whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. No place is found for this present heaven and this present earth where we live today in God's judgment. No place is left for the earth we live in and the present structure of the heavens, the atmosphere, the entire universe, however far out that goes. And God, you know, to us that's huge, but to God it's, you know, literally or metaphorically anyway, but literally in the palm of his hand. And there's no place for them. They have to be remade. So the earth has served a purpose, and it serves a purpose today. Um, I can't remember when, but we went through some Bible doctrines a while back, a couple of years ago, I think. And we talked about the difference between general revelation and special revelation. And general revelation is a theological term used to describe what's taught to us in Romans chapter 1 and then in other places in Romans 1, which we'll look at right now, that everybody can know God just by looking at the world around them, that the world testifies concerning God. There's so many things I have seen around just this area where we live. I finally got to go see the so-called devil's post pile. I'd probably call it God's post pile, but it's called that um, up there up at Mammoth Lakes. And I've been wanting to see that for several years. And we finally just took a day trip over there and went to see it. And as soon as we walked the path, turned the corner and we're looking at it, I had the same impression that I had when we went to the Grand Canyon not long ago. As soon as you walk up and you see it, you just think, how can somebody say there's not a God? I mean, it's just, I've never seen such beautiful uh, geometrical shapes that just came up out of the earth, you know, and they're perfect hexagons. And there's, there's no way that nature could have done that without a designer, you know, and everything in nature, everything around us tells us that God is. And that's called general revelation. But general revelation is not enough for people to be saved. What general revelation does is it convinces us of our sin. It shows us that we need a Savior. But we need special revelation. And special revelation is Jesus Christ, God who came in the flesh. <clears throat> and the Bible, which tells us of, of the Word of God and is the Word of God. So the Word of God, both Jesus and the Bible the, that we read, is this special revelation given to us and impressed on our hearts, made alive in our hearts by the very living Holy Spirit of God. So look with me over at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 20. Verse 20. So in verse 20, it says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body, for in hope we have been saved. This hope, 
this redemption of our body, this adoption as sons. These are all just different ways of saying the first resurrection, as it's written in the book of Revelation, our resurrection from the dead. It's a huge lie that's being told in our society today and around the world today that the world would be a whole lot better off without us on it. And that's the lie, that we've overpopulated the planet, there are too many people, uh, we don't need to have any more kids, uh, you know, that uh, we, we've got to turn all our cars into electric cars or just get rid of cars and go back to walking or something. You know, that the world would just be a lot better off without us on it. And it's a complete lie. If you've ever seen any part of nature that's completely not tended by human hands and not cared for by humans, it goes wild and it begins to groan within itself. It does not produce what it would produce. The world was created and then we were placed on this earth on the sixth day to tend to the garden, to take care of this earth. We are to be the husbandmen of the earth. And of course, we have failed miserably in that. I get it. And there's a whole lot of things we need to change because we are messing things up really bad. But we need to understand that the corruption that we see in the world, if you would call that in nature, that you know all animals die, flowers die, trees die. We're going to have to chop down that big maple there uh, this month because the guy came out and said, no, it's just dead after that big limb came off. So no sense trimming it. You're going to have to take it down. I don't know how many years it's, gonna, it's been there, but it you know, happened on my watch. Eventually, a tree has to come down because it dies, right? No matter how long it's lived, even if it's an olive tree that's lived 2,000 years, it, it could just die. Thanks, Pete. Well, I kind of don't. I kind of sort of feel like that because I did drink water. But anyway, you're supposed to have lemon water. Whatever. Um, so, but the scripture tells us that creation was subjected to futility because of our sin. I mean, could you imagine living in a world where we ourselves were corrupted and we died with sin, but everything from houseflies to bears just lived on and on and on, right? I mean, the whole world had to be corrupted so that it would not be above us and greater than us. That's what Romans 8 is saying here. And it said that God had this hope that he had this hope that it would bring salvation to us, that through this revelation of our need for a Savior. So the first heaven and the first earth no longer have any place before God when uh, the thousand-year reign of Christ has finished, when Satan has been judged and removed from the earth, when all sin has been judged and cast into the lake of fire, when there is no more death anymore, then there is no more need for that old earth that we live in today. You know, we love that old car, but it's just not worth fixing anymore. You know what I'm saying? We need something new. And so there's no room left for the, the heavens or the earth anymore. Now look with me at Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah ch chapter 65, and I'm not going to read the whole context on these verses. I'm giving you just one verse, but you can read it for sure and get more out of it. But Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17, in the Old Testament there are promises concerning this. And the Bible says that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word should be established. And so what's being spoken to us in detail in Revelation is founded upon very sure Old Testament promises. Remember that Paul said that I am in chains for the sake of the hope of Israel that have been given as promises to the fathers. And in Isaiah chapter 65 and in verse 17, we read, For behold, I create new heavens 
and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or even come to mind. Can you imagine that things will be so good, so wonderful that you won't even remember any of the trials or the troubles that you go through today? And then in chapter 66 of Isaiah, and in verse 22, it says, For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, in other words, they will last for eternity, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. And you know, that means a lot. That really means a lot. Because again, there's this big lie of our science fiction age that someday, you know, humans just won't exist anymore. So we better send somebody to Mars so we can colonize some other planet because we're going to destroy this planet. No, that's a complete lie. That's not what the scripture says. There will be a new heaven and a new earth and it will be populated by us. <laughs> it will be populated by the same people that God created on the sixth day by the same family, the same human family, only after the resurrection and with new bodies. And then in 2 Peter chapter 3, sometimes we just have to renew our minds to what the scripture says because there's so much nonsense that's uh, spoken to us or pounded into our heads all week long. <laughs> we have to get it back on track with what, what does the Bible actually say? In 2 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, now we've looked at a lot of verses that Paul wrote over the course of this, uh, these lessons. And we've looked at Daniel. We've looked at a lot of things. Nobody says it like Peter because Peter is just so simple. He doesn't give any deep details or anything about 77s or a uh, time of great tribulation. He just cuts to the chase. And it says in Second uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, and it says before that that the day of the Lord will come like a thief and everything will be burned up. Everything will be burned up. So he doesn't even mention the thousand years or all the details of what we've looked at. He just goes right to it. Everything's going to be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? In other words, right now. How should we be living right now? What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Because everything is going to be burned up anyway. This church building, these seats, the clothes, our own physical bodies we're in, we'll have new bodies, everything will be burned up. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Um, I like that. Are we hastening the coming of the day of God? Are we trying to get Jesus to come back sooner? Are we praying for that? Are we working for that? Because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace. Stop worrying about everything. <laughs> it's going to be okay. There's a new heaven and a new earth coming. Spotless, blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. If he hasn't come back yet, just thank him that he hasn't come back yet. He's working a great work of salvation. There's still people on this earth that need to be saved. And there's a lot of parts of my life that still need to be fixed. Things that he wants to clean up. You know, things that need to happen. You, didn't want, you probably wanted to get out of school when you finished fifth grade. But I bet you're happy now you stayed all the way and graduated. Because you needed a whole lot more that the school had to offer for you. Regard the patience of the Lord as salvation. 
just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, and which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. So I just read that last verse because I love that verse. It shows inside the New Testament how Peter confirms that the writings of Paul are holy scripture. Did you see that? And Andy admits some things there are not easy to understand when you're studying the times uh, of the last days. That's why we've spent so many lessons going, going over them. But for Peter, it's really simple. So coming back to Revelation 21, uh, another thing I want to point out is about the sea. Because we talked about the, heaven, uh, <clears throat> the heavens and the earth, but it, it also says uh, that there is no longer any sea, or literally there is no longer a sea. No longer a sea. So some people have asked me, does that mean there won't be any water? And they always say, well, that, does that mean there won't be water in heaven? And I'm, first of all, I'm like, well, why are you talking about heaven? This is on the, on the earth still. It's just a new earth. But no, that doesn't, I mean, maybe there won't be. I don't know. But that, how am I supposed to know what's going to be there if it's not written directly in the Bible? But that's not what it's referring to. If you recall in our lessons, we've come across the sea several times. Uh, in John chapter 6, verse 18, the sea seeks to destroy the disciples. But Jesus walks on the sea and subdues it under him and commands the winds and the waves to stop. He takes authority over the sea. In Revelation 13, 1, the dragon stands on the shore of the sea and the beast arises up out of the sea. In Revelation 20, verse 13, uh, that we read a couple of weeks ago, the sea is equated with death and Hades as the place of the dead. And in many other scriptures in the Old Testament, uh, in the whole story of Jonah, uh, most people think that Jonah was swallowed by a whale and he lived inside that whale for three days and then the whale spit him out because that's what they told you in preschool, Sunday school. But if you just read the book of Jonah carefully, it's very obvious that Jonah died and was resurrected. You don't have to try to make up some kind of... Uh, Pinocchio thing where he's inside of a whale somewhere. That's not what he says. He says, I went down to Shoal. I went down to the place of the dead. And yeah, he was literally swallowed by a fish, but he was literally spit out, but God raised him up from the dead. He cried out to God from the place of the dead, it says. And the sea is symbolic in that whole story of the bottomless pit of death. Uh, because even to this day, with all our modern science, we have not explored the entire sea. And especially in ancient times, of course, the sea and its depths were completely unknown and were filled with many strange and wonderful creatures for people. So when it says that there is no more sea, then we need to understand that there is no more judgment of the dead. No more judgment anymore. Remember the sea, the first place we really see this, uh, other than the flood in the story of Noah which is, is also showing judgment. Everywhere it's showing judgment. But the first place we see it in the story of Israel is when God leads them out of Egypt, right? And he splits the Red Sea, and they walk over on dry land without any judgment from God. But as soon as the Egyptians get in and they get out, then God closes the judgment down upon them, upon their armies, and their armies are destroyed. So when it says that there is no longer a sea it's speaking spiritually of there is no longer any judgment because there's no longer any sin. And like I've told you, we cannot even in our wildest imaginations even come close to understanding 
what life would be like without sin, without failure, without sickness, without regret, without tears. And we've, you know, people do say, well, isn't that going to be boring? You know why? Because we're so used to sorrow. Sometimes we even, all of us, if we're honest about it, we enjoy feeling sorry for ourselves. Sometimes things get so bad that it, it kind of feels good <laughs> to feel sorry for yourself. And then you slap yourself, wait a minute, i got to fix this stuff. I can't just wallow in everything, you know, and i got to go on with my life. And, and so we just don't even know what it's like because we were born in this sin. And our bodies uh, live in this, this sin today and in this sickness and disease. And, and I'm not speaking negative confessions. Christ is our healer. You know, he forgives us of our sin. We walk in the righteousness of God in Christ, but the most holy of us and the most faithful of us one day is going to lay down and die. That's just, just how it goes if Christ doesn't come back first. And then the, other, the next thing that I want to point out here is the new Jerusalem. So he says, I saw the new Jerusalem uh, adorned as a bride for her husband. So the bride of Christ, uh, yes, it is the church, uh, usually in our songs, and when we talk about the bride of Christ, we say that the church is the bride of Christ. And, and it is the, the bride of Christ. But to be more technical, the new Jerusalem is the bride of Christ. And so if we're not seeking the new Jerusalem, then we can hardly go around calling ourselves the bride of Christ. You know, in Hebrews, it talks about how Abraham and the other great saints of faith, that they were seeking for a country that they did not live in. That they lived, it says that Abraham lived in tents with Isaac and Jacob on this earth because he didn't have a home on this earth. That he was seeking a country. He was seeking a city that really belongs to his, to him. And we are citizens. Before we're ever citizens of the United States or Russia or any other nation on this earth, we are citizens of heaven. We are citizens of the new Jerusalem. So John gets his first view of the city where we're all going. Okay, And we're going to this city because it's actually where we came from. We were created to live in the presence of God. So the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ. By the way, the word new that we see here with the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, uh, there are different words for new in Greek. And this particular word, and they have different shades of meaning, this particular word is the Greek word kenos. And kenos means new, uh, but it means new in the sense of young, okay? It doesn't mean new in the sense of it never existed before. Something can be new in the sense of it never existed before, or it can be new because you remodeled it, because it's fresh, right? And this is that word that means like fresh or, or young. So this doesn't necessarily mean that the entire planet's going to be blown up and God's going to make a new planet. It may very well mean that he'll remodel the entire surface of the planet. I, I, I don't know how it's going to work. But it's going to be so fresh, so young, so new. And the Jerusalem is, that's coming down from heaven that all the former things will be forgotten. A new world created by a new covenant uh, that, that, that our groom, that our husband has made for us in his own blood. Go with me over to Revelation chapter 26. Revel I'm sorry, Leviticus chapter 26. From exciting book to boring book, as most people think. But Leviticus is not boring. This is one exciting book. 
You just have to think a lot. Leviticus chapter, and look at all those little cross-references if you've got them in your Bible. Leviticus chapter 26. So way back when God gave Moses the law, in the law, in the middle of the most legal, of all the legal books in the law, it says this in Leviticus chapter 26, verse, uh, verse 9. 26, verse 9. There we go. So I will turn toward you and make you fruitful and multiply you, <clears throat> and I will confirm my covenant with you. You will eat the old supply and clear out the old because of the new. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you would not be their slaves and I broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. So even there is a prophecy speaking of a time so far away that the people could not even understand it yet. Not until Isaiah is it said that there'll be a new heaven and a new earth after many hundreds of years. But already there's a prophetic word that God says, I'm going to make everything so new that you're going to eat all the old stuff so that you have room for the new. Have any of you ever done that? You know, you know you're going to go to Costco or something and you're like, well, come on, let's eat up all this junk we've been saving here or something. <laughs> you know, and if you, these days we don't usually eat it up like they would have done back then. We just throw it away. It's kind of sad, but we have a disposable society. But we have something new coming. We've got to get rid of the old. You know, Danny and Diane got a new bed, and we got blessed with an old bed from them, which was super new to us, and I still love sleeping on it. So, I mean, you know, when, what, you know, one man's junk is another man's treasure kind of thing. So we get, he says to them in their society, in the agricultural society, the way that they could understand way back then that this is going to be so new that you won't have room for it. So you better start getting rid of the old stuff. And I think that's a word for us today, that you better start getting rid of the old attitudes, the old sin, the old stuff that you've been cluttering up the rooms of your spirit man with uh, you've been cluttering up your lives with because God wants to do something new. He wants to do something new in your lives. And I don't think you have to wait until Revelation 21 to get it either because he wants to do something new in your life today. And maybe we're missing out on the new. Maybe we're missing out on the new that he wants to do in our lives because we haven't cleared out the old. I know that's a challenge that God speaks to my heart many times, has done so many times in my life. And I've been sensing him saying that to me even now. And I even sense it as I'm preaching it to you tonight. That there is something new that God has for us. And we're holding on to the old. And it's not bad old, but it's old. And he wants us to clear it out so that we make room for the new. And God says, then I will dwell in your presence and I will live with you. So, Come, go back over to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. And I also want to draw your attention to the three messages that are here. The three messages. So there's a message here from the Spirit of the living God. There's a message from the Father God. And there's a message from the Son. And they all speak as one. In um, uh, verse 3, Notice it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne. And the loud voice is not designated whose it is, 
And we know that at the throne are the, what's called the seven spirits of God, which we've talked about, that it's the one Holy Spirit. But there are seven aspects of the Holy Spirit. And so this loud voice of the Holy Spirit comes and says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. So he's repeating what's said there in Leviticus chapter 26. But he's saying, Now it has happened. God and man at table are sat down together. The tabernacle of God is among men. I'm going to talk about tabernacles here in just a minute before we close. And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and, and on what we've already read. And then in verse 5, it says, And he who sits on the throne said, So the Father God says, Behold, I am making all things new. And then it says, And he said, and in verse 6 it says, Then he said, but it doesn't tell us who the he is, but in the context of Revelation, it's Jesus that's been talking to John from the very beginning, and he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. So we know that this is Jesus. So Jesus speaks also. And what Jesus says, he says, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. So go with me over to John chapter 7, and you're going to have to go there again on Sunday. Just make a little plug for the Sunday sermon. We're going to be talking about the Feast of Tabernacles. Actually, not this Sunday, but the next Sunday we'll go to John chapter 7. But look with me at John chapter 7 and verse 37. John 7 and verse 37. So the entire chapter is concerning the great feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, or what's called in Hebrew, Sukkot. And this great feast that's happening that I'll explain Sunday is in chapter 7. And Jesus goes up to the feast, but he goes up secretly. Nobody knows that he went up there. In fact, he tells his brothers he's not going up there and doesn't tell us that he's lying. He just wasn't planning on going up there. And then at the right time, the Holy Spirit led him to go up there. So he goes up to the feast. Nobody knows that he's there hardly. He's doing some things and teaching some things. And some people have noticed him, but they can't find him. And then it says in verse 37, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out. Suddenly, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus pops up in the middle of the crowd, and it's a huge crowd. It's a huge crowd. And he cries out. When it says cried out, you know, this is a loud voice like we see in Revelation. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Now here's something you need to understand. That at this moment in time, on the last day of the great feast, this is the seventh day of the feast, okay? And on this last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, remember that God has his tabernacle now amongst men. Tabernacle is just a fancy word for tent. That God's camping with us now. That we're living under his tent now. We're under his roof now in Revelation 21. So this is the Feast of Tabernacles that prophetically looks forward to what's fulfilled in Revelation 20 and 21. But the first day of the feast is fulfilled in the thousand-year reign of Christ. This is the last day of the feast, when everything is made new. And on this day, the priests, at this very moment in time, would be taking uh, water from the pool of uh, Siloam, and I'll explain that in a different message, and they would be pouring that water out on the altar up at the temple. And right as they're pouring the water up, Jesus pops up and he says, hey, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. 
And we're not going to get to this tonight, but I'm laying this out for you right now. When we get the whole picture of the new Jerusalem, there's going to be a river of living water that's flowing from the throne of God. Jesus said it will flow out of your belly. But here's the new Jerusalem. What is the new Jerusalem? What, what do we call a city that has no people that live in it? A ghost town, right, Jerry? <laughs> we call it a ghost town. You know, nobody lives there. It's not a city anymore. It's a ghost town, right? So the New Jerusalem isn't just the buildings. The New Jerusalem, that's, that's us. We are the New Jerusalem. We are the bride of Christ. So out of the very center of the New Jerusalem, out of the belly of the New Jerusalem will flow this river of living water. But we are the center of the New Jerusalem because we are in Christ Jesus. You understand? But we have that and enjoy that in our lives today, if only we will. If only we will recognize who we are in Christ. Jesus said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Do you know, first of all, that you have an innermost being? That you are not just a physical creature? That you are more than even your mind? That you are more than even your logic? You are more than your understanding? That if you meet a person who's completely lost their mind because of some <clears throat> disease or an accident or something like that, that doesn't mean that they have no cognizance of what's going on. It just might mean that they only have a realization of what's going on in the spirit realm. But do you know the spirit realm is more real than the physical realm? Because the, maybe more real is not the right word, but it's primary. The physical realm was created out of the spiritual realm. God is spirit. And God said, let there be light. And the physical world that we live in was created by the word of God that said, let there be light. Science will tell us that everything breaks down to atoms and every atom breaks down eventually just to energy, just to light. Everything is made of light. The light that God put into motion on the first day of creation. And we know from science class in fifth grade that energy can never be destroyed, right? Energy just changes form and keeps on going on because it's been here since God said, let there be light, because it was here before it came into the physical world from the spiritual world. And John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is this light, right? And the Bible tells us that everything that exists, it holds together in Christ Jesus. And so we live in this universe that is way more spiritual than we ever think about than we ever think about. And he says here that Jesus says that this river of, of, of living water is going to flow out of your innermost being. You are a spiritual person. You are a spirit being. When your body dies, you will continue to live until the resurrection. You will come up again with a new body. But you won't just float off somewhere. You will be in the presence of God. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If you know someone, and I know that many of you do, who suffers from dementia or some other disease like that, sometimes I've ministered to people that were in comas in the hospital, and I've never assumed when I walk into that room that they cannot understand me or they cannot receive anything from me. And I speak to them and I pray for them just as if their eyes were open and they were able to speak back to me because I know that they're there spiritually. And I believe that that spirit man, that spirit realm is 
like I said, maybe more real isn't the right word because this is real, our fleshly realm, but it's primary. It exists before uh, the realm that we live in. And then verse 39 of John explains it. He says, but this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified, past tense, because now he has been glorified and he is given to us. Out of our spirit, from our very innermost being, flow rivers of living water. So James says it really well. If you're supposed to have a spirit, a living water well on the inside of you, but there's poisoned, uh, you know, dirty water flowing out of your mouth, then something's really messed up. Because that's not the way it works, is it? You know, and so it's calling us to walk. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is, if this, like Peter said, if this is how we're going to live for all eternity, why not walk in that right now? Why not walk in the Spirit? Be led by the Spirit. Seek after the gifts of the Spirit at work in our lives. What's wrong with praying in other tongues, with speaking prophetic words, with interpretation of tongues, with laying hands on the sick and, and seeing them healed? See, what's wrong with, with instead of sending people right off the bat, go, go to a psychologist or a doctor and get some drugs, with, with saying there's a demonic force at work here and let's pray because we can break this off of you. Let's cast this out. Let's have some deliverance. I mean, what happened to the book of Acts? Those people walked in the Spirit. Well, that's how we will live throughout all eternity, is in the Spirit. So I believe that it's calling us, as Peter says, and it's written for us, so that we would walk in the Spirit today. Because Jesus says in his message, he says, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life, without cost. You don't even have to pay for it. All you need to do is believe. So this, the new heaven and the new earth, is the last great day of the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the coming of the presence of God, of the Father God, to dwell among, amongst us and for us to dwell together with him forever. Jesus said in John chapter 14, I go to prepare a place for you. Right? In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not true, I would not have said that to you. But I go now to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. That's what Revelation 21 is describing. That's what Revelation 21 is about. I want to, last thing here in these verses I read, just draw your attention to is the difference between the overcomers and the other people, and what the other people are called. Because this is Jesus talking. He says, he who overcomes. Remember how many times we've seen this word overcome in the book of Revelation? In every letter to the seven churches. Every letter. A letter is sent to Yarrington Vineyard Fellowship. You know, a letter is sent to the city of Yarrington. Just imagine. Why not? It's sent to all seven of those churches. Should we not receive those seven letters for ourselves? And in every one of them, this challenge is, is, is thrown down to the church that you can be overcomers if you just want to be, if you just will follow me, if you will remain faithful to me. You can be overcomers. You can be victorious. That victory is assured unto you. I've read the back of the book. And we win if we will be the overcomers. So Jesus says, 
who overcomes will inherit these things. What things? The new heaven and the new earth. You're going to inherit. The meek shall inherit the earth, Jesus said in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. Right? The Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek, so, for they shall inherit the earth. Just so you know, meek doesn't mean weak. Okay? If you don't know what meek means, look at Moses. Because the Bible says Moses was the meekest man on earth. It means to be humble, to be teachable, and to have an ear that's open and listens to God, and you're obedient to God. The meek shall inherit the earth. So the overcomers inherit these things, the new heaven and the new earth. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But then I really want to point out how the, the ones cast into the lake of fire are described. It calls them, of course, things like abominable, murderers, immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, but look at the first two words in the list. Cowards and unbelievers. They're cowards. That's an interesting term. That you have overcomers on the one hand, and you have cowards put opposite of them. And it tells me that the greatest, the greatest challenge to me being an overcomer exists within myself. And I really believe from personal experience, although I've never been to war or something really out there like that, have had some near-death experiences, had a gun pointed in my face a couple of times, I was working at Safeway of all things, and <laughs> but, but I really believe that, that um, cowardice is not uh, something that's just inherent in a person. That you're not born a coward. That a coward you know, when we back down or if we've been tempted to back down from something that God has for us in our lives because it scared us, that feeling of being scared, I really believe that that's just normal to all human beings. But the coward is the one who chooses his own self-life over the life of God. You understand? That he chooses his own life over the life of God. And I was going to say this on Sunday, I might say it again, but I'll bring it in here. I don't have the notes with me. But there's a really good, there's, I don't know if you've ever read, has anybody ever read Moby Dick? Or you just watched the movie, the Gregory Peck movie. Great movie, by the way. But go read the book sometime. That's an amazing book. And it's really short and probably the only great American, well, there's a couple more. Last of the Mohicans. Not very many great American novels, but that's one of them. But in Moby Dick, there's a part where uh, Orson Welles, in the movie it's Orson Welles, but there's a part where uh, the preacher is preaching uh, to the uh, sailors getting ready to go out. And I can't quote it right here because I don't have those notes with me, but he, he says to them uh, that it's the, the hard, basically he says the hard thing, of, no, he says that when God wants us to do something, he very rarely tries to convince us that we should do it. Usually, he just commands us to do it. And the reason for this is because it's so hard for us to be obedient to God. And when he commands us to do something, then we're, forced with a, we're, we're faced with a choice, that we have to choose either to obey his command or to obey, obey the command of our own flesh. And if we choose to obey the command of God, every time we do, our own flesh automatically is going to fight against that it's going to reject that because it doesn't want to do what God wants us to do. So a coward is the one who rejects the command of God, ultimately. 
who refuses out of refuses to love God enough to lay down his life for the sake of the kingdom. There are no cowards amongst those who have been beheaded in the book of Revelation. There are no cowards amongst those who have suffered for the sake of the gospel in the book of Acts. There are no cowards in the kingdom of heaven, it says. And so when we overcome even a little thing, a very little thing, you know what, is it a big thing for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to not bow down at the statue of Nebuchadnezzar when the music played? It's not really a big thing. You know, they didn't stand up and say, we condemn you, Nebuchadnezzar, you are an evil king. They, didn't, they, didn't, they just didn't bow down. I'm not even sure they went to that concert knowing they would have to bow down. I'm not sure they had a plan ahead of time, but when they said to him, you have to bow down, it just kicked in on the inside. No, we, we ain't bowing down. No matter what happens, we won't bow down. And everybody around, I'm sure it's going, come on, bow down. All you got to do is bow down. It's not that big of a deal. You know, we've talked about this in the book of Revelation, how historically at that time, many of these things are written to Christians who were being forced to go once a year and pay a little tiny penny of money and just kind of bow down to the emperor as a sign that they worship the emperor as a god. And they were doing it. Why? Because if they didn't do it, they're going to get killed or put in prison. Or their kids wouldn't get to go to college or something else. And so they were chickening out. They were cowards. And there's a lot of things in the book of Revelation we've seen, and here it comes again, that it's written to us, don't be cowards, because there are no cowards in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, there are only winners. There are only overcomers. So be the overcomer that God has created you to be. You may never stand in a place like Paul or Peter, but you will for sure stand in a place like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you have already in your life when there's a chance and an opportunity to say, no, I will not bow down to the God of this age. I will serve only the Lord my God. I will love the Lord my God with all the, my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, and with all my strength. And then I will love my neighbor also as myself. So I'm going to end with that. I thought I'd go further tonight, but I'm just following the Holy Spirit with this. So I'm going to end with that, and we're going to pick up right there, and we're going to go in and look at the description of the New Jerusalem, which is amazing. And we'll get to that next Tuesday. Amen? Any questions tonight about what we were talking about? Not those far-out questions that I don't have answers for, but you can ask them if you want. But any questions about what we were talking about tonight? You're either too tired, or I just did a great job explaining it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word tonight. I thank you for all the youth that were here this evening. I thank you for Shalene's heart, desire to minister to them and to serve them. I thank you for the word that you've put on her heart specifically for them in this season and in this time, Lord. And we just continue to pray that the things that you have revealed to us and spoken to us concerning our children and our youth, Father, that they will come to full manifestation and be more than we could ask or even think, that there will be an outpouring of your Holy Spirit upon our youth, Lord, today. I just pray for them this evening. I thank you for your word this evening. I thank you for drawing our focus up to heaven. I thank you for drawing our focus to the new Jerusalem, to the place where we will live for all eternity in your presence and together with you, Lord. And I just thank you, Lord. Help us not to forget that, yes, there's coming a day when there won't be any tears left and all of this will just be forgotten, Lord, because everything will be so new and so wonderful. And we pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the message. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urintonvinionfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.